I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. My guest this week is Eddie Campbell, one of the greatest cartoonists in the world, whose work includes From Hell, Bacchus, Alec, the remarkable Monsieur Lyotard, which I love, as well as the author of a great book of comics history called The Goat Getters, which is available through Ohio State University Press, Library of American Comics, and IDW Publishing. In the hour or so that we talk, Eddie and I discuss some of the most interesting discoveries from his book, which fills in a key part of comic history that I never knew about, and I think many of you won't know about either, which is this gap of time in which comics were really in formation. They spawned in many ways out of the newspaper comics of the late 1880s and into early 1900s. It's a lost era of comics history that Eddie fills in amazingly well in his book, and we talk about that, as well as some of his theories on comic storytelling and other uh, interesting sidebars. I think it's a great hour or so of listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please leave feedback on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. And there are show notes available at comicscavalcade.tumblr.com, including samples of some of the artists who we describe. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for... <laughs> what a nice I plug, a, right? I put up a blog. I think I get, I get three pictures of art <laughs> boosting Alec. It's one of my all-time favorite books. We should probably talk about Goat Getters, but before we start, I was in college when the first softcover Alec collection came out, I think through Escape. Oh, right, yeah, 84? 84, yeah. And I remember I had just discovered Harvey Pekar's American Splendor and loved it, but kind of was put off by how dour it all was. Yeah. And then I picked up the first Alec collection with those wacky, like totally joyful stories. And I swear I read that first story. Danny never forgave himself for leaving Alec at the side of the road. A dozen times or more. Like I, I always, I still come back to it again and again. It's just so full of joy and life, and it totally captured how I felt at the time. Yeah, okay, lovely. So, yeah, uh, he was a curmudgeon, um, <laughs> Harvey. Harvey, I was on a panel with him once. I, I worked. I did a little two-pager with him in one of the DC collections. Oh, I'm not sure I remember that. Two, two leading figures of autobiographical comics worked on the same pages there. He himself was telling a little anecdote about Benny Goodman, some some 1940s comic where the jazz sex, the jazz clarinetist Benny Goodman, band leader, was was masquerade was also working as a, a detective, <laughs> solving crimes huh. in between sessions on the bandstand, <laughs> and he was just. He, Harvey was telling the anecdote, and I, I, I said to the editor, I said, everything looks really dull here. What I'd really like to do is actually draw the anecdote that Harvey is telling in the margin. <laughs> and I can't remember who the editor was. He says, oh, I'll have to ask Harvey about that. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not authorized to let you do that. Anyway, Harvey said, sure. So there's this little spontaneous burst of, burst of joy in the middle of one of... Harvey's Durham monologues. <laughs> I gotta pull that out. I have like those collections here somewhere. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what your book is in, but it's collected somewhere in one of Harvey. I think it was, he just, when he was at DC because he was with different people toward the end. He was at different publishers. Right. I think I, I find that I, it's an interesting situation. A lot of publishers like would like. I, I find myself in the same boat with publishers. They'd like to have an Eddie Campbell book, or they, they'd like to have a Harvey Picard book, but but only one. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't want to make a habit of it. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a good thing for them to have in their catalog. It gives them street credibility or something. I I don't know. 
and so somebody like Harvey or or myself, we can we can make a, a living by going from pillar to post. <laughs> we, we never have a regular berth anywhere. I think that's probably the uh, the reason I've, I've worked for so many publishers. Is that the uh, the life of a cartoonist in his fifties and sixties to kind of wander from publisher to publisher and be content with yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. You you bring your you bring your credibility with you, and every publisher would like a little bit of it. Yeah. Well, that's my exp- that's my explanation. <laughs> that's me putting a positive explanation on it. No, you see, with others also, uh, Gilbert Hernandez is another perfect example of that. He's got a home, but everyone wants a Gilbert book. Yeah, yeah. They like to have one, but they do. They they know in their hearts it's not going to be profitable enough to put uh, years and years of effort into (laughs) into partnering with the the artist, fill in the blank. But um, but that's good because you know it, it means it means we can make a living. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you could put out work that. At least the people who enjoy it will get to enjoy. I mean, Goat Gutters kind of took me by surprise how much I felt like it was a revelation. Kind of filled in some holes that I had never really realized were there. Yeah, there you go. See, there's another one. There. Goat Gutters is, is another one that I'm, I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a book that's not going to make anybody any money, but it's a, I'm just so pleased. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful object to have... Um, Produced. I'm so happy to see it. done exactly as I designed it, proper properly sewn together. You know, mm-hmm. I, I you know I've spoken to public. I showed when I was showing that somebody said to me said, but, but yeah, you get pictures going across the gutter. You know, if if it's a glue binding, nobody can nobody will be able to see that. And I said, well, who's going to use glue binding on such a beautiful <laughs> such a beautiful book as the Goat Gators? So it's great that it was done properly. You can open it flat and see those huge uh, heroin pictures, you know, going all the way across the, the gutter, the, the fold. Yeah, that's literally what I'm doing right now, yeah, is is uh, exactly looking at the the uh, gutters, and it, it's just a really nicely designed book. Um, and like I said, it really fills in a gap. Uh, it always seemed like the birth of the American comic strip kind of just kind of almost burst out of the skull of Athena instead of evolving from this uh, this uh, sports-based uh, cartooning element. And yeah, I've had to explain the book as saying that it's, it's looking at the origins of the comic strip from a new angle, but, but that's in order to get the, the, the comics reader and the comics scholar interested. Really what it is is that it's my belief that the, the comic strip is just part of a much bigger picture and I wanted to show something of that bigger picture the picture is too, is too big to get in one book, the picture of cartooning mm-hmm. comics is a, is a genre of cartooning and just as political cartooning is another one or caricature celebrity caricaturing is, is another genre of cartooning and the only thing we get looked at in isolation they never nobody's ever tried to show how they all lock together because you get the same artists uh, working in all of these fields in the you know Herman Herman drew all of these kinds of cartoons at the same time that was his career and it's hardly ever looked at in that way that it's this huge, complex. Uh, these these early guys, they were newspaper men. They, uh, they they expected to be sent out to draw to draw anything, you know, whether it was a house fire or a body in the morgue or this, the early cartoonists. They, they they took pride in being newspaper men. It, well, it's almost a misnomer to call them the early cartoons because they were illustrators who were evolving out of the American illustrated tradition. And it evolved into cartooning. It kind of took its own tropes in the 1890s, late 1880s. Yeah, it all came out of newspaper, specifically newspaper illustration. The 
comics comes out of newspaper illustration. And one of the things that I was interested in showing was how, you know, the rugged, the rugged anatomies of, uh, of our, our, our superhero comics. Where did, where does all of this come from? Well, we know currently they, they all started getting out of the muscle building magazines, but going back a bit further, where did people at Eisner and Kirby get their concept of the, the muscular figure, the muscular, mm -hmm. particularly the male figure, because it, it's, it's an age when we run around, back then people didn't run around without clothes on as much as they do today. Right. You know, everybody's wearing a suit. So where do guys like Kirby, where do they get such a, a clear, specific and grand idea of the, of anatomy? What does that, because, because they're not getting out of the anatomy books, it's, it's overblown, it's, it's magnified, it's exaggerated. And one of the discoveries I made while looking at the sports cartooning was that they're getting it from the sports cartoons. These um, early depictions of Jim Jeffries and uh, Jack Johnson, these huge big figures drawn accurately and you know, anatomically correctly in the middle of these what are otherwise funny cartoons mm -hmm. which it was this peculiar device of the sports cartoons of drawing the serious figure and humorous sidelight figures at the same time so they're treating the subject serious they're, they're treating their their subject seriously and getting his goat <laughs> simultaneously the expression to get a person's goat comes out of sports page cartooning and it, it became so popular that it became part of the, the language of, of, of America back in the 1910s, 1920s, to get somebody's goat. And you still hear it today, occasionally. But it really was a feature of the, the language at the time. So many artists have their own unique styles. The Nell Brinkley art, for example, versus Tad Dorgan art versus George Harriman art is just so diverse and yet they all kind of follow a similar fashion of the time yeah so another thing I was really interested in was the way that cartoons happened in a different way in different parts of the newspaper so that Nell Brinkley on the women's page drew in that lush romantic style whereas the, the guys on the sports pages were employing a deliberately ugly style mm -hmm. so that when Ted mocks <laughs> on the sports page he's mocking what she's doing on the women's page he's doing the same thing in a, a vulgar uncouth style that she was doing in a, a blousy romantic <laughs> right way the newspaper was this environment where things that happened they would happen in a different way or they happened in different parts of the paper the way cartoons happened on the front of the paper was completely different from the way they happened on the back of the paper the front was about celebrities and politicians well-known people so you get big head caricature but in the back of the paper they're just they're, they're doing humorous things or they're making fun of ordinary people and, and they use a big foot style and that's really what they Yeah, I like the juxtaposition. I thought it was interesting how there's the big foot and big head style. And it's, a, it's yeah. kind of almost as you move further back in the newspaper, you go from big head to big, big foot. Yeah. And and so the ordinary Joe Schmo, he's, he's not granted the dignity of a personal profile. It's not worth going all the way out just to get his likeness because nobody cares what he looks like. <laughs> so he's identified with the faceless, you know, the stereotypical clown figure, which is... Which is where most of the early uh, comic strip, strip comic strip figures uh, come from. What they're based on, characters like Happy Hooligan, Jake's from Bringing Up Father. They've all they've all got the big feet of the clown. Well, and and that's the big evolutionary step of the newspaper comic, which is interesting. I think in and of itself, not just simply as an intermediate step. But someone like Bud Fisher using his daily kind of semi-fictionalized story about a graph trial in San Francisco turns into kind of one of the the prototype classic comic strips of his era. Yeah, he he was a 
Bud Fisher. He was he was he was a sharp character. He he knew how to he had, he knew how to make a thing work. He knew how to he knew how to make money out of it. He knew how to he himself became one of the first comic strip celebrities, one of the one of the earliest comic strip millionaires, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he had a he had a chain of racehorses that he, he would he would ride them in Central Park. He knew how, he knew how to work it. Yeah. And he deliberately pursued that ugly style that specifically came out of these sports pages and was a lot of people, a lot of comic fans early on because comics, the comics fandom was all based on the elegant drawing of Lou Fine or yeah. Will Eisner or whatever. So they would disparage something like Bud Fisher's uh, Martin Jeff as being, as being badly drawn. The, or the Gumps. The Gumps is another one. Mm-hmm. It would not be funny if it wasn't drawn just as ugly as it, as it is drawn. All those, those artists could draw properly. But to be funny, you had to be ugly. To be funny in that way, to be funny in that abrasive way that, be, that came out of the, mm-hmm. the sports pages. To get somebody's goat. You've got to draw in an ugly way. There's no point in drawing in an elegant way because that would only be half as funny. Right, it's a lot of what McLeod talks about in understanding comics, where the more abstracted the human form is, too, the more you can identify with it, the more absurd it becomes. Yeah, the famous Krigstein Mad Comics uh, version of Bring Up Father, where he yeah. drew Father getting slammed on the head with a rolling pin and he had a concussion that looked horrible versus the abstracted version. Batman Adventures, yeah, based on the cartoon. Batman Adventures. They were aiming it at the kids, but, but even in that, there's very few of those artists doing that stuff that totally understood how to communicate pictures to kids. Like, I remember Callum, my son, saying to me, what's happening here, Dad? And I said, he's shooting that guy, and he's, he's, he's shooting that guy who's outside of the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my son said, why is he shooting him outside of the picture? And I thought, in that moment, I completely understood why these comics are illegible. A huge portion of the population is because they, they are pictorially unreadable. If I showed them to my mother-in-law, they'd be totally illegible. She wouldn't mm-hmm. know what was going on. I had They're an illegible to, to people who have read comics for 30 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm often conscious of that, is that, you know, I'm so embedded in the media. I've been, like I, we said, I've been reading since since the 70s really that it's like a sec is like my not uh, a language i'm used to reading i had an epiphany reading barnaby the classic strip collections fanographics put out i think three volumes another great comic by crockett johnson right extraordinary comic and there's a few things that stood out to me reading it one is that the characters are all in panel and another is the characters are always making eye contact and I started noticing, like, so many, especially American superhero comics, there's no eye contact, either with the reader or with other characters. And so yeah. it's a little bit disassociated. Yeah, I think it's a big problem. Trickstein, 
elucidated this whole problem way back in the 60s. And, and it, he, I, I'm sure he couldn't even have imagined how much worse it was going to get. Mm-hmm. This, it, what, what was it? He expected the, we're losing the integrity of the picture, he said. So that if, for instance, you take his scene from Master Race, which what the story you mentioned earlier, the last three pages in which the mysterious stranger pursues the man who has been our subject all the way through, the, whose background has only just been revealed to us in, in increments that he was once the governor of a, a prison camp in Germany, a, a death camp. When the mysterious stranger chases him into the underground station and along the platform where he eventually falls under the wheels of a train, if we, sometimes there are 13 or 14 pictures Mm-hmm. on each page mm-hmm. but on every single one of those pictures you see the pursuer and the pursued mm. in every picture at no point do we get a fraction of, of something every picture com- contains the entire drama of one man pursuing another man the integrity of the picture is, is maintained every sliver is a, is a complete picture insofar as it needs to be insofar as with the artist is still trying to communicate the drama of the pursuer and the pursued. If the subject changes, then you cut to something else, and then you create a new picture to progress the action into the next phase. But this is something that's completely lost today, and uh, I, I look at these, I, so many comics are just illegible, and I, you just can't look at them. You, you can't show them to somebody who, who hasn't been, as I say, hasn't been reading comics all their lives because they're unintelligible. <laughs> I can tell it is. Do you consciously apply those lessons to your own work then? Oh, yeah. Always. I have a rule, for instance, that on every page you should show at least one pair of feet. I, I pass this on, I, you know, if I'm talking to young people, it's the same. What can, you, what can you tell me that will help me? I say, on every page, I say, every page, make sure you show a pair of feet. Now, what this actually makes the young artists do is that it stands far enough back from the action to show all of the action at least once on a page to show a full figure interacting with the other figures on the rest of the page <laughs> showing a head pointing or a gun fire or whatever but at least once on every page show the whole action show where everybody's standing in relation to everybody else if you just remember to try to draw a pair of feet on every page that kind of takes care of the problem because it reminds you to stand back for a minute. Look at the whole picture. Remind the reader what's going on in the whole picture because he's probably forgotten if you haven't shown it for a couple of pages. I guess that's often called an establishing shot. Yeah, the establishing shot. Re-establish it. Don't forget about it. There should be at least one on every page. Establish the whole thing. How high up, how, how tall is this person related to the other person? Where, where are we? Is it a room? Is it outside? What the establishing shot? Keep us grounded. Keep us involved. And I, I think that's a place where I, I, I'm I'm as big a fan of comics as an art form as anyone. But I feel like it's a, it's a place where comics often will fall down versus other art forms. It, it just comes so much easier, I guess, in film or TV, especially to set an establishing location. Yeah. And that may be part of why the movies are, are so much more popular than the comics these days. One of the problems that I have is the comics have gotten so complicated as, a, as a, the machinery of, of putting things on the page and reading them off the page has gotten so complicated. But it's a complication directed just to creating a kinetic effect. Mm-hmm. It's not directed toward creating works of greater depth. To create works of greater depth, we should be thinking about uh, elaborating the, the language of, the symbolic language that we're using, or, or that we're using in any single work of creating more complicated relationships between the symbol for one thing and the symbol for another thing, rather than this total obsession with moving things about the page at, at higher and higher velocities and having them smack into other things and much of our 
visual language is just geared toward that end. It's, it's not making anything more deep or meaningful. It's just moving everything around faster. Like, like manga. So everything we picked up from manga is just helping us create this kinetic action. It, but it's adding no depth of uh, uh, no meaning or, or humanity or... It's not, I don't think it's creating a greater variety of experience. Well, do you think these more heroic, bolder, more upfront comics are pushing out the more artful comics that are out there? Because there's still many good and more artful-oriented comics. You know, Close, Hernandez, Chris Ware, they're all still working and all still doing great work. And the next generation, the next two generations behind them is also doing great work. even serious books or books with a serious intention or meaningful intention often fail because particularly books coming out from the big book publishers when they do graphic novels I, I won't name any examples but it, it's like the the artist author was unaware that there was a, a rich technique available or a, a, even a rigorous technique of, of organizing the stuff on the page. There's a lot of amateurism abroad in comics these days, particularly with the books coming out from the, you know, the, the big book publishers, because you know the editors there are not really aware of it, that there's a complicated pictorial technique that exists. And a lot of the time they're just seeing what the book is saying. Mm -hmm. This is the story of this famous person or that famous. Do you know what I mean? That, yeah. Uh, that they're only seeing the content, and it, and, and it could have been, it could have been made, made much, much better with a sound knowledge of technique. Yeah. The same kind of thing mm. happens in, in in all the arts. Sometime where, as a thing becomes popular, it becomes available to the the amateur. And they may have, they may or may not have something important to tell us. What's well, also they true... They may or may not be able to, to put it across better if they were aware that there is a, there are ways of doing it. I'm just making this up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> go along yeah. yeah, and it's it, interesting because you just said something really intriguing there, which was they almost don't know better, is that the the fashion of the time is to do things in a certain way and they're copying the fashion of the time and they haven't been exposed to either thoughts or materials that would make them think in a different way or if they were they would see it as being quaint or outdated that's a, that's a good point I, I and it gets us back on course I, I think a sound knowledge of the history of cartooning but, but I think the history of the history of comics has become ossified into a few routine narratives that get told and retold in, in such a way that nobody ever goes back and looks at the actual material. Comics began this way, comics began, and then this thing led to that thing and that thing. And if you actually go back and look at the newspapers, some, I, I, as I did, I thought, that, that's not true. I, this is not what I'm seeing here. Going back and looking at the material, I'm seeing something else, which is kind of what the the Gold Catchers was about. This is me arriving in old newspapers, and this is what I see. And, and, and what I see is much more interesting and exciting than the, the rote pseudo-history of comics that's come down to us. So I'm a historian myself. I, uh, in December, I released the American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1990s through Tomorrow's. Oh, yeah. And I also, you're behind those, of course you are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I wrote the 70s book as well. So, um, yeah, I, I know a good amount about this kind of thing. To me, actually, the most revelatory book of that series was the one in the 1950s that Bill Shelley wrote. Because the common oh, yeah. narrative is that basically the industry died in 1954-55 when EC collapsed, and then started to revive in 1956 when The Flash came out in Showcase Comics. But in fact... Yeah. 
that's completely untrue in many ways. Dell Comics were selling in the millions of copies. Carl Barks and his contemporaries were doing spectacular work. It's just that the, the prevailing narrative of the 60s and 70s was that comics were a vast wasteland at the time. And I think a lot of what you're doing as well is kind of counteracting this idea that there was nothing before, uh, basically adding adding the larger narrative that there was there was much more going on than people thought there were. Yeah, yeah. One of the <laughs> kind of went off on a few different tangents there, Eddie. Uh, the history of the history of comic the history of comics is that there were there was the triumvirate of evil villains, the Red Skull, Doctor Doom, and Doctor Frederick Wertham. <laughs> right. And this and this has become the the meta narrative for the for the history of for the history of comics. I quite like Fred Frederick Wertham. If you actually just go and read Frederick Wertham, he's an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and his his book, The Seduction of the Innocent, there's some very there's some very innocent useful information comes out of it when he's talking about comics writers, and he says many he said many of them were uh, had had aspirations to write on a higher level and they didn't really want their names in comic books they thought that that would ruin their career right they, they didn't care that they went credit for them they were just making money until they got their prose novel printed people like Patricia Highsmith who, who wrote the, the talented Mr. Ripley wrote a bunch of comics before she got her first novel published and then I don't think she did a couple of Hollywood screenplays as well. But we don't know what comics she wrote. Her name never appeared on any of them. Mm-hmm. I, don't th- I don't think it matters. I don't think she regarded them as particularly interesting. It would be fascinating from a biographical standpoint to see uh, how they related to her. Yeah, to find them and see what, what she did. But it, so going back to you, go, whole, go ahead. There's a whole population of writers and artists because even in, in something as that gets very little attention which I, which I love actually was the, the romance comics in, between 1949 and about 1953 they were the highest selling genre of comics Jack Kirby was that, well, that's what he, what he was mostly doing during those years was romance comics with the, his young romance and young love that, you know they had these two romance comics that he was doing for prize there was a whole field there there, there, there and there's something like 108, 108 different publishers in Manhattan, and they were all publishing romance comics. <laughs> well, they were doing all the other kinds of comics, but we've, it's back, by, by 1960, I think there were seven or eight publishers of comics. The, the field really did clear out. It really did. It was crushed and largely leveled. But to think that in 1950, huge, huge number of comics being churned out every... It's no wonder that most of them are crap, of course. Well, right. It goes without saying, but but you find you find interesting ones in, in un, unpredictable places. You know, crime comics or romance comics. You can find some very interesting things if you take the trouble to look. Yeah, well, that's kind of the pleasure of staying a collector for decades. Is there's always more interesting stuff hiding in plain sight. So, in contrast to the anonymity of a lot of the creators you were talking about. The uh, cartoonists in the San Francisco newspapers that you write about in the Goat Getters were really treated as stars of the time. Yeah, they were. That was, of course, comics becomes very much a factory. You know, comic books are very much a mm-hmm. factory production thing when when they arrive in the forties. But you know, but at the beginning of the century, people like Ted Dorgan and um, Robert Edgren on the New York World. These guys, the way we looked up to by, you know, young guys reading the paper, they'd go to the sports page first, and, and these cartoonists were their heroes. They themselves, uh, they walked in a world of celebrity, and they were they were celebrities themselves, interviewing all the great boxing stars and baseball stars of the period, all the Babe Ruths and so on. Do you think the editors of the papers built them up to help build circulation, or to build a following, or what do you, what do you think the motivation yeah, was they, then? They, yeah, the, the, the papers themselves certainly got, uh, and they paid their star cartoonists proportionately. They, they, these cartoonists, as we were saying earlier with uh, Bud Fisher, they, there was the opportunity to become wealthy. If you negotiated your contract correctly, you could do very well indeed. 
I, I got to make sure we talk about uh, how popular boxing matches were for cartoonists to draw, especially. Yeah. Boxing matches. The greatest male celebrities of the period outside of the theater were in, were in the world of sports, especially in boxing. And theater was really largely the, the, the field for, for young ladies. It was, I, I mean, as, as interested in... Ladies knew everything that was going on in the theatre. They knew the ins and outs of the of the lives of the great theatre stars. But for for young guys, it was it was the boxers. It was Jim Jeffries and Bat Nelson and Jack Johnson. These guys were giants. They they were colosses, <laughs> colosses, striding, striding across the land and demanding huge amounts of money to appear in a match. Huge amounts of money. For the fright of the century, both Johnson and Jeffries made about 150,000 each. Well, and Johnson is one, Johnson is such a boxing fight. Yeah. This, this was what a time. This was at a time when when the average working man was making six or seven hundred bucks a year. Uh, and, make, but uh, it, yeah, and Johnson is being like, Yeah, and Johnson as a. Johnson was an African American, and he's, he's an amazing figure because he he lived according to his own rules. He married a white woman, and and, he, and this was very unpopular with the establishment. They had to bring him down. They had to crush him, and they had to put him in his place. Johnson managed to get out of the country. He, he lived abroad for several years. He managed to, and it was really only the the First World War that drove him home. He couldn't make a living abroad. Europe was ravaged by warfare, and he came home, and he, and he did a year in prison for for being prosecuted under the, the Mann Act, for, which is about taking a woman across state lines for immoral purposes, which, which was a, which was a, a rather cruel and yeah. terrible act. I, I think it still exists in some form that's much different from what it was, but if, if you looked for your sweetie with your sweetie to get married and had to cross a state line to do it. You could be arrested under the Mann Act. It's just astonishing the level of racism. It's not astonishing. We all know intellectually there was such a level of racism. But to see it in plain sight, Jeffries relented to the rematch saying, I'm going into this fight for the sole purpose of proving a white man is better than a Negro. I mean, that's just horrifying. Yeah, he wouldn't have done it except that Johnson had managed to win the championship in 1908, two years earlier. And to do that, he had to chase Tommy Burns all the way around the world. And they fought a match in Sydney, Australia, for the, because Burns was the world champion. And Burns relented at last. He'd managed to, he'd managed to stay ahead of Johnson across Europe, across England, across mm-hmm. France, all the way to... <laughs> what a narrative. All the way to Australia. And he finally relented and agreed to fight. And Jack Johnson took the world championship, brought it back to America. Uh, and this was really the only reason that it was always easy to refuse to fight him. But now that he was the world champion, it seemed important to, to fighters like Jeffrey, white fighters like Jeffries, to get this back. They had to get this back at all, at all costs. And they grew this narrative of the, as they called it, the, uh, the white man who would win the championship for the white race. And we still have this today, of course, because some people conceive their whole existence in terms of their skin color, in terms of... I don't know how the word race got involved here, because this, the, the, who's the theory? This I'd have to read up on this. This all goes back to the theory that colored people belong to some other race than mm-hmm. on the human race. This hor- we're all coming, we're, we're, The whole world is veering back to this horrific state this right-wing autocracy, this uh, so-called populist politics, and we read about it. We're going to, every day we're going to read the, about the horrors of uh, what Trump's gone and done now, or who's who's committed some atrocity in the name of Trump or whatever. How are we going to get out? How are we going to get out of this? How are we, how are we going to reset the clock? How are we going to put things right? Yeah. But anyway. I could go in a whole other direction there, Eddie. I, we we can go into you know, the last thrashing of, of a dying mindset versus the ascendance of an evil mindset. We could go into that if you want, but I'd rather keep a focus on comics. So there it is. So there it is. And, 
I devoted a whole chapter to the fight of the century in which a whole 32 pages which took place in Reno, Nevada, after San Francisco refused to uh, be the host to this event. They found a, a welcome in Reno, Nevada, which, which is a wayward city then. And I guess Nevada still is the place for these things to go to get things done that you can't get, any, you can't do right. anywhere else. The fight of the century, the white man versus the, the African-American. And it was covered by six world-class cartoonists who, who were all town plying their trade and sending them back to their newspapers and who all happened to be San Franciscans because or who came from somewhere else but who made a reputation on the west coast because this is where sports cartooning came from and this was its greatest moment Tad Dorgan, Rube Goldberg Robert Edgren, Jimmy Swinnerton famous for his comics and A.D. Kondo and Robert Ripley later famous for Ripley believe it or not yeah, and of course, Rube Goldberg was famous in his own right. And they'd had a dry run for this at a previous fight in Carson City, Nevada. But the fight in Carson was between Simmons and Robert Fitzsimmons oh, and yeah. Corbett, Gentle and Jim Corbett. And there was another fight took place in Nevada, and another huge was between the black fighter Joe Gans and Bat Nelson at Goldfield, Nevada in 1906, I think it was. So Nevada became the... Can I ask a Can I ask an odd question that no one who hasn't read the book will understand? Why did the cartoonist always draw Fitz like a leopard with spots all over his body? He, he was freckled. He was a, he was red oh, okay. Freckled, and one of them, Robert Edgren, I think it was, drew these freckles like they were the size of uh, quarters, <laughs> or the English penny. Yeah, all over his arm and shoulders. And that became the standard way of depicting Fitz. Poor Fitz. He, he was drawn like a speckled monster. Yeah. Johnson was always drawn as a... Most of which I didn't show. He was always drawn as this... In, in the worst possible racist way by, by most of the second-rate cartoonists. But this was how it was done. This was the idea of humor. This was the American idea of humor as this hugely abusive and abrasive kind of thing. All of this changed with Midwestern humor in the late, say, after 1915, which was much more gentle and humane and an engaging and friendly way of dealing with your fellow human beings, uh, as in Gasoline Alley and the work of Claire Briggs, H.T. Webster. It's a totally different kind of humor, a, a humor which is, not, which is never trying to impale somebody an individual which, which is always dealing in a, in a gentle way with the foibles of humanity. Well, do you think that evolves out of sports where it's always confrontational? Especially since which boxing, the kind of San Francisco style, especially since it's yeah, so focused on boxing. style is always confrontational. And there's always a meanness in it. In a, it's, it the sports page was a dangerous place to be. And somebody like Fitzsimmons just accepted that this was the way, this is how, this mm-hmm. was, you had to take your knocks. Yeah. Was, if you couldn't take your knocks, you were a mollycoddle. So it was a very rough world, the San Francisco sports page, which moved to New York because all the major sports cartoonists in New York had come from San Francisco. They had got births in the major papers there. There was uh, Ted on the New York Journal, Edgren on the New York World, Goldberg and the New York Evening Mail, Ripley was on the New York Globe, etc. There was two or three others. The San Francisco style planted itself in New York. It's kind of urban versus. And it's a very distinct, a very exciting style. Yeah. Because it's so it's so roughneck and violent almost. But some of the little cartoons are quite violent, you know, like that one I showed with the the footballers, got the other footballers shooting right through his middle. There's a violence to it that's, that's kind of surprising. You think, oh my goodness, that's, that's rather violent for a 1906 cartoon. And there's really a through line to that to the early Golden Age comics too, which are just as violent and who draw even, drawn even more crudely, but the violence is right yeah. there in the face of everything. I'm really struck by the diversity of the drawings of Jeffries and Johnson. There's some beautiful drawings of Johnson that could be produced today. And 
basically juxtaposed with this kind of minstrel style depiction of him, which are just incredibly offensive. And it's fascinating that they, they went from this realistic style to this, as you say, abusive style that they probably didn't see it that way at the time. The right next to each other. All in the same pictorial space. And yeah. The, the cartoon was a, a, a complex of different things all going on at the same time. And when I, I've, I've always, I've always thought somebody would write a book explaining this because I always thought, where did this come from? How did this come about? The American sports page cartoon graphically is a very interesting thing. It does things that nothing else does because from comics, you know, you're doing a humor comic, you start in that style, and that's the style you're in. You do a a horror comic, you're in that stuff. But with these cartoons, they've got all these different stylistic devices happening at the same time. And I was wondering, how did it get like that? Mm-hmm. And so I worked through it chronologically, and I found that the crux of the matter was that the threat of the photograph arrives in the newspaper. And because up to this point, this was like 1897, 1898, and it takes longer to get into these sports pages because in the sports pages, your target is moving. He's harder to photograph when he's running about, whereas the earliest photographs of the paper were society matrons posing in their evening gowns and things like that, a sitting subject. And so the actual drawn graphics lasted on the sports page longer than in the other pages because they were trying to draw a moving target, which an artist can do better than a camera. But really, it was the artist seeing that the camera was going to take the newspaper artist. Everything in the paper was drawn in 1895. Even if it was a photograph, the photograph had to be hand-copied into ink. It couldn't be reproduced yet. They didn't have the mechanical means to reproduce it on the high-speed presses. You could reproduce it, but you'd have to clean the plate every 10 minutes. And then there's no point in a high-speed press if you've got to stop it every 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? So there are all these complications. But the photograph was the thing that was going to steal the artist's livelihood, and he was aware of this. And when photographs started coming in, there'd be a photograph, a photographic portrait of the the athletic star, the boxer, the ball player. And around about it, they would do the tomfoolery, the the facetious things, making fun of him. So the photograph would be honouring him and the little things around it would be making fun. But this is how it started. Then it got back to them actually just hand-drawing the the serious pictures again. They actually just liked doing it. They liked drawing the serious pictures, even if they had to copy the photo. And they gave it a certain panache, a certain, just a little bit of a a charge that that made it more interesting than reproducing a photograph. And this was kind of how they kept in work, by being so good at doing it that their drawing was preferable to the photograph but they still got to do the tomfoolery around it. And I realized that this is how it came about, but that then became the style that everybody expected on the sports page. They wanted the cartoonists to be doing that, and so they stopped putting the photos on. Uh, in, in the cartoons, the cartoonists still held sway. The, the, uh, the reader wanted to see his dynamic figures, his dynamic anatomies, which we said earlier, influenced the way the dynamic anatomies of comic books like Lou Fine for instance where did Lou Fine get that that? those figures that are springing horizontally or leaping flying because we don't see that but these guys in the sports cartoons were already doing that 40 years earlier well the sports cartoons continued even into World War II period yeah and and a lot of those guys that that we see in Marvel guys like Joe Senator Sam Rosen, the letterer. You find that these guys used to do sports cartooning for some paper. But this was a thing that was dying out by this time. Photography by this time was, was doing it a lot. But a lot of these guys, I, I was looking at them recently, was it, was it, I think it was one of those lettering guys at Marvel in the 1940s. He was doing sports cartooning in, in a small town paper. It was a genre of cartooning. It was it was invented, then it became a genre of cartooning in the same way that the comic strip is a genre, or the political cartoon is a genre. And in the newspaper, they're all kind of interrelated. They're not... When we get a history, we get a history of the comic, or we get a history of the, the political cartoon, or whatever, but we, we never actually get... They are actually... They have a very complicated relationship among themselves, and nobody ever looks at that, which is what I wanted to do. 
It's much more holistic the way you present it. I like the pages where you present the headlines and you get the idea of an image covering four or six columns, and therefore it, it really is in its true context. Even going further, I, as you say, I'm as interested in the things that are around the cartoon. In the days when a cartoon was created for a specific place in the paper, later on with syndication, the cartoon doesn't know what's going to be next to it. It's going to, it goes out to all the different papers. We're into a different era then. But back in the day when a cartoon was specifically created to go in this spot in the paper, it's interesting to see what's around it. The news items, the... the, the in, in one of those cartoons, for instance, there's a running argument underneath it about who created the first curve. Who was the man who made the first curveball? And, <laughs> and they're arguing about it for several days running, but who, made, who did the first curveball? And I kind of I find that kind of interesting the the noise the noise that's going on around the cartoon. Well, and I think that comes through well in the book because and I hear in your spirit about talking about the era in a holistic way. I think we're so much more narrowly focused now because we're not seeing everything in a more holistic way. That we're not seeing you know the newspapers pages juxtaposed next to each other. And even the experience of seeing this stuff in microfilm or in tear sheets versus seeing the full newspaper kind of takes it yeah. out of its context. Yeah, especially in the kind of cartoons we're talking about. Like, for instance, in the book, I've got one there by Rube Goldberg, which is about lovemaking is going to be taught in schools. Well, another thing about the sports page cartoons is that they were, they were aimed at adults. You know, mm-hmm. the, the funnies, the color funnies are aimed at ch- kids, you know? The sports page cartoons are aimed at, you know? So, Rube Goldberg, he's got all these little vignettes and ideas about lo- what, when, when lovemaking is going to be taught in schools. <laughs> but, if, but a few days earlier, there was, there, was a little, there was a little news item. You know, if you're paying attention to everything else that's going on in the paper, there was a news item that somebody in Illinois had proposed this, that courtship should be taught in schools and the, we've got a lot of heavy-handed courtship going on out there young men are boors they, they ought to be taught how to do it properly they ought to be taught the politenesses and the niceties of how to present themselves to young ladies <laughs> because lovemaking in those days meant courtship courtship holding her hand <laughs> in the Victorian era so very often you find that understand the cartoon and you know what else is going on in the paper is the thing about the, the color funnies is because they're aimed at the kids they can never refer to anything that's going on in the real world i mean the funnies at that time uh, of little jimmy and happy hooligan and the cats are jamming kids and little nemo which are gorgeous and wonderful pieces of work but they can never refer to anything that's happening in the real world at that time because children don't read the rest of the newspaper and in those days before television and radio, they don't receive it by osmosis just by being in the room. Unless they actually read the paper, they don't know what's going on. So very often with these cartoons, you get a much better understanding of them. You know what's going on in the real world. Which is why when I show the cartoon, give a little glimpse of the noise around it, some of the real world noise. Also the way that people looked and dressed and acted at the time. I just always find that kind of stuff fascinating. Just the number of hats. I think Goldberg is one of the the, the funniest cartoonists um, doing sports page cartoons. Mm -hmm. And something that tends to be forgotten is that he was a sports page cartoonist for most of his career. But he very rarely ever cartooned about sporting events. He cartooned about everything that came into his head. But he was always on the sports page. I think I showed him at 20 or 20, 25 Goldberg, full-size Goldberg cartoons. Heroin was another one. You know, Crazy Cat was born on the sports page. Crazy Cat originally appeared on the sports page. Yeah, that's a revelation for me, too. I'm a huge Harriman fan. And first, just getting to see some of his cartooning from that era, you have an illustration, for example, of him going west to watch the boxing match. And just the <laughs> yeah, cuteness of the really... images of that. It's just wonderful. He didn't get to be at the big fight because they'd sent him... He, he, was, he was working for the Los Angeles paper, but they sent him to New York to take Tad's place because Tad was covering the fight. So Tad came west and Harriman had to go east. But it was during that week that underneath his ding, the Dingbeck family, he first drew mm. Crazy Cat. 
it was that week. And Crazy Cat is a black cat, and the and the, the dog, the pup is a white pup. He's got a black cat and a white pup. In the week of the big battle between Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson in Reno, Nevada, and that's the origin of Crazy Cat. In, in some ways, that fight changed everything. Yeah. It was a yeah. revolutionary moment, anyway, in comics. That leads to this whole thing where basically comic strips just are something that evolved out of the sports cartoons, where these cartoonists would be featured, they'd be prominent on the page, and they'd basically just develop this process where they, where they would just do daily strips, and eventually it just seemed logical for them to have continuing characters, first as just short-term characters, right? They were basically like, they were gone for 40 weeks or whatever. They would create these little bits of business and little um, animal characters or, or whatever. Tad with his dogs, it, yeah. Within, within, you know, Tad had Bunk the dog, um, and his little dog characters went on into the comic strip. Silk Hat Harry's divorce suit, Silk Hat Harry being a little terrier. But these dogs started to walk upright and wear clothes <laughs> and became disreputable. <laughs> in an ongoing comic strip that appears every day and Harriman created the crazy cat and that became a, one of the last characters to come off the sports page as I show was um, Barney Google and I don't know Barney Barney Google is, is one of the greats remember the US mail that yeah. stamps of it I think there was 20 of them the 20 great comic strip characters of the century because it was, it was like 100 years in 96 it was 100 years of the American comic well Barney Google of course was you know there's Popeye and Little Orphan Annie and so on and so forth but, but Barney Google because I don't know if he's as well known today as he as he once was but Barney Google was one of the great <coughs> comic strip characters Excuse and me. probably the last one to come off the sports page during the 1919 fight between Jess Willard and Jack Dempsey. I hasten to add, by the way, that I'm not a sports fan. I don't know anything about sports, <laughs> except what I know through the cartoon. Really, what I'm interested in here is the art of cartooning. And I think this particular genre, the sports cartoon, is one of the great genres of cartooning. It, it interests me just as much as the comic strip. But I'm only interested in sports to the extent that it helps me understand these cartoons. I don't go to ball games. I, I've never been to a boxing match in my life. I just don't care. It's the it's the cartooning that it. I've always been a sports fan, and part of the reasons I've stayed a sports fan is because this is the closest thing we have to heroes with supernatural abilities in our real life. This is true. Yeah, the celebrity sportsman is always a larger than life figure. He's he's a colossus, as I said earlier. Yeah, and the other reason is that it's about the only area in life you can predict what's going to happen, but you don't know what actually is going to happen, as opposed to watching yeah. a movie or whatever. And I, the fact that you just it never also, know. It also, going back a hundred years, it, it because it's in the era I'm talking about is really the beginning of when a boxer could make a huge amount of money, mm -hmm. and. It hadn't really happened before. It was it, one of the way it was a promoter. I'd figured out all the angles on promotion. He was a brilliant promoter, and he was able. One of the things was the filming of these prize fights. It was through the proceeds that he could could make by selling the film rights and things like that. He just he figured out a way of turning it into a huge big business where he could pay uh, the boxers huge amounts of money. But this also meant that. It's the first time, perhaps, in history, short of robbing a bank or something, where an ordinary guy on the, from, from the lowest rungs of, of society, well, the working class would say in England, but that has a different meaning here, but, but, the, but, but the laborer can climb his way up to making more money than the president. There's one boxer, I forgot his name momentarily, but he boasted that he was making more money than, than the president, and he was. He was making more money a year than the president of the United States. And he was the laborer who climbed his way up as a, mid, uh, a middleweight boxer. And it was the only field in which that could be done. 
an African-American guy could climb his way up, be making more than the president. In fact, he, <laughs> when he was hauled in for speeding, it's one of the anecdotes in there, he was and um, in his car, because he, he owned a bigger car than any, anybody else that he could ever meet, and he was ordered to pay the fine of $125 it was, and he put, pulls a huge roll of bills out of his pockets just to be annoying, and peels, <laughs> off, <laughs> peels off a few bills just to indicate that he's making more than the judge. The sportsman, the boxer can be can become rich, and and the period I'm writing of, as I say, is when it began, because I think they, 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 they went, oh, it was all due to the film rights, really, is where the money started to come in. And then, I think the first film was made in 1997. I think the first film might have been the, the, the Carson Nevada fight, which mm-hmm. actually exists today on a film. You can watch it. You can find it on YouTube. Oh, wow. Okay. And selling that to the theatres. The, I don't even know what they was. It the, the industry of, of the movie, yeah. the movie theatres around the country. Where, where these films could do the rounds, and I think you sat in a little booth and turned oh, the wow. or something. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, you know, just at the beginning of the movie industry. This is obviously like work of real passion. How long had you been thinking about this era and took, how long this project it took? Me five years. Okay, it took me five years to do the book. In fact, I haven't finished doing the book since I finished the book and it was published. I think I've changed about sixty or seventy pages. I've, I've even found better pictures and things. If you ever do a second edition, there'll be many differences, but that'd be a long way off. But, do you do that to your graphic I, novels I, too? Do you, do, you, do you want to go back and revise, or is it just something about the history? <laughs> but this book did, it, 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 it has obsessed me for, uh, for five, six years now. Right now, colorizing from hell, you must have seen that. That's, that's taking up most of my time at the moment. Uh, I'm up to volume seven. We've just finished volume seven, so that's moving along. How is it revisiting that work after, what, 30 years? I, I understand that a, a certain roughness about it is, is what makes it work. There are some places, because I'm not just colorizing it, I'm fixing a few problems. There's, there's a few just logistical problems about, I, I won't say what they, I would say. So you're like scanning the work in and, and photoshopping it to clean it up? Not to clean it, it's just that... The, you know, for instance, in Mary Kelly's flat, where she lives, Netley steals the key. Because the key's stolen, in order to let herself in, she has to reach through the broken window and turn the door handle. Except that when I drew that, in when I drew the building in Chapter 8, I didn't know in Chapter 10 we were, somebody was going to have to reach through the window and turn the door handle. And really, the door had, the door is too far away from the window. Ah, I see. Things like that. So I okay. fixed that now. I've moved the door, which you can do in Photoshop, as you said. Things can be fixed in Photoshop. I can move the whole door on the outside of the building closer to where the window is. It's on the corner. I don't know that a door would be on a corner like that, but I've moved it. It is now. You never know where the where doors appear in those old buildings that they right. turn into flats. Right. <laughs> We're going to break a door through here. <laughs> yeah. Did you... Exp- if only we were a window. Where would you like one? Are you surprised that work has lived on for so long compared to some of your other work? Or do you did you always believe it was going to be something that would last? I knew from the beginning it would last. I, I remember I remember when I printed the big book for the first time in 99. Um, the orders came in from Diamond and it was 6,000. I said, what do you mean 6,000? There's an Alan Moore book. How can the orders only be for 6,000? And they said, well, this is what I got. So I ordered printing because I was publishing it myself. I thought, what's the most I can afford from the money that I will get from the 6,000? I'll use all of that money to print the biggest print run I can get for the next one, which is 12,000, I think. I'm trying to remember. It's 20 odd years ago, 20 years ago to this this year. So I ordered ordered 12,000. Before the print run had arrived, before those 12,000 had arrived, we've got so many reorders that we were now up to 13,000 and still growing. By the time the book was printed, I couldn't even supply the orders. I had another order in for another 10,000. It was worth it. I knew it would sell. But I just couldn't believe it. I thought, this, this is so small. This, this, can't, this can't be right. Have we told everybody loud enough that it's coming? And, of course, it's never it, gone out of print. It's never gone out of print, except for when we... Our printer in Canada went out of business, and we were out of print for about a year. And I think 
during that time, I, I printed out just as evidence, but you could get a nice copy on eBay for $124 during the year that it was out of print. So I also wrote the American, uh, wrote part of the American Compa Chronicles in the 1980s, which is out of print. And I think it's available on Amazon for like $1,100 or something, which just makes me laugh every time I see it. Obviously, no one's going to buy it for that. But, you know, those those weird a- Amazon algorithms that... Yeah, uh... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody feels justified in asking. Oh, I've never, I've never seen these books for years. I'll have to look them up. Yeah, well... Um... See what you've said about it. It seems like you don't do very many of these kind of podcasts, from what you're saying. I, um, I, from time to time, they come okay. up. Okay. Um, the, the, the terrible thing is when you sit down to do an interview in a cafe or something, you know, and the, at the end of it, they, it hasn't worked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the equipment hasn't worked. The, the machinery has failed. My, my daughter's a journalist. She... She does this kind of thing all the time. Like, yeah, like you're doing. I have two ways of getting it. I have backups. Yeah, yeah with Skype, you I can got... easily record directly into Skype, but with... Uh... Yeah, I've only done interviews a couple of times, and it was for print, but one of them, the sound was so bad that uh, the trouble I had getting a clear clear lines of English from, from, the, from out of the crackle, I felt I was making it up at times. I was a printed interview I did 20 years ago. And I love yeah. hearing I love hearing your passion for this this older material. It's very cool. I'm really kind of agnostic when it comes to history. I just love comics history, and the more I read about it, the more I get fascinated with it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the interest. Oh, thank you.